When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. Hey, what's going on, guys? It's Henry with Bro History, and on today's show, I have a very special guest. I have Dr. Gregory Goss, and he is the head of Department of International Affairs at the Bush School of Government and Public Service at Texas A&M. His research focuses on international politics of the Middle East, with a particular interest in the Arabian Peninsula and the Persian Gulf. Uh, Today, Dr. Goss will be sharing his knowledge on Saudi Arabia, um, Mohammed bin Salman, as well as what he thinks the future looks like between uh, the United States and Saudi Arabia relations. So uh, we had a really great show. It was very informative, and I hope you guys enjoy it. I really thought it would be valuable to have somebody with a lot more experience in the field than I have. Um, I wanted to specifically talk about MBS, um, what's going on right now in the Middle East between the Cold War, uh, between Saudi Arabia and Iran, and uh, try to just make some sense of it all um, with your insight. And, and I think a good place to start would be to talk about MBS, um, how this young guy uh, essentially became the head of state at such a young age. So uh, if you could uh, please give some insight on that. Sure, well, uh, it's a monarchy. So uh, you don't have to fight your way up if you're the son of the king, but it, and, and he is. But it is an interesting case because in Saudi Arabia uh, for decades now, we haven't had the kingship pass from father to son. It's passed along a line of brothers and half brothers all of whom were sons of the original founding king of modern Saudi Arabia, a guy in the West we call Ibn Saud. Uh, And and the the current king, King Salman, is one of those sons. And so since uh, the 1950s, the the succession in Saudi Arabia has gone horizontally, not vertically. So this is really the the first opportunity for the next generation uh, represented by the grandsons of Ibn Saud, and and uh, Mohammed bin Salman is one of the youngest of those grandsons, to uh, to get the, into the kingship, and so uh, I think a lot of observers of Saudi Arabia, myself included, thought that the when the transfer came to the next generation, it would be some of the older grandsons, and, and there are grandsons of Abdulaziz who are in their seventies and eighties now, and. Uh, I kind of thought that they were going to recreate the system uh, along the lines that their their fathers had, which is kind of a a rule by committee. King is first among equals and succession would pass 
not from father to son, but along from, uh, in this case, in the, this generation, cousin to cousin. Uh, but King Salman uh, overturned that. When he came into power, he originally named one of his half-brothers as his crown prince, and then within months kicked him out. Then identified one of the, uh, one of the older grandsons of Ibn Saud, a guy named Mohammed bin Nayef, who was Minister of the Interior. Uh, Minister of the Interior there is not like it is in the United States. It's basically the police guy, the internal security people. And Mohammed bin Nayef was a uh, uh, very, uh, he, was, he was close to the United States. He cooperated with America after 9-11. He was the main point of contact on counterterrorism and counterintelligence sharing with Saudi Arabia. So people in Washington always liked Mohammed bin Nayef. They thought he'd be a good king. And, and uh, people in the Obama administration thought that it would be a, a, a smooth transition from King Salman to Mohammed bin Nayef, with Mohammed bin Salman kind of coming up and maybe he'd be crown prince when Mohammed bin Nayef was king. But then uh, after President Trump got in, there was a, a very close relationship established between the Trump White House and Mohammed bin Salman. Uh, Jared Kushner and Mohammed bin Salman were in direct contact. It was, uh, it was an unusual a kind of back channel communication. And uh, the Trump administration seemed to be very uh, supportive of MBS and they were willing to support him in an effort to get rid of, uh, to get Mohammed bin Nayef out of the line of succession. I don't think that would have happened in any other American administration. This was a more direct American involvement in Saudi succession questions than we've seen in the past. So uh, with the support of the Trump administration, uh, Mohammed bin Salman convinced his father to uh, uh, turf out Mohammed bin Nayef and in, uh, mid-2017, Mohammed bin Salman becomes the crown prince. Uh, and so I think that, that that's an interesting story in and of itself, but it's particularly interesting given the involvement of the Trump administration in it. Yeah, it sounds really weird. Is there any, can you think of any reason why Trump would want, MB, would want MBS over bin Nayef? So I think that, that it had to do with uh, the fact that the Trump folks, uh, Jared Kushner particularly, identified Mohammed bin Salman as somebody who would take risks, someone who would uh, try to change many of the elements of the domestic politics of the kingdom, de-emphasize the religious element, cooperate with, with, uh, with Kushner on Arab-Israeli peace issues, uh, take a very strong stand toward uh, Iran. These are the things that the Trump administration wanted coming in. Uh, Mohammed bin Nayef was more cautious, uh, if you will, a more traditional Saudi leader. He wanted to cooperate with the United States, but I don't know how far he would have gone in terms of, of domestic political uh, changes in Saudi Arabia. I'm not sure how far he would have gone uh, signing on to a, a Trump administration, Arab-Israeli peace plan. So I think that there was this idea in the Trump White House that this guy, Mohammed bin Salman, was on the same wavelength as they were. And, and that he would uh, move faster than Mohammed bin Nayef. See, I was under the impression that MBS rose to power because of his economic vision. Um, to be more specific, he was able, he recognized some of the economic problems that were going on in Saudi Arabia, and that's how he ascended to power. Obviously, there's a lot more 
to it than that. But that was like my initial understanding of how he rose to powers because he had this vision, um, Saudi 2030, Vision 2030, I believe. Can you speak to a a little bit more about the economic state of Saudi Arabia right now and and what they plan on doing in the future? Sure. So I think that the, the Vision 2030 thing was not the cause of his rise to power. It was one of the consequences of the rise to power. Uh, one of the, the things that I think made him attractive to the Trump administration and to many people in Saudi Arabia uh, was that he recognized uh, that Saudi Arabia couldn't rely on oil forever. Uh, the Saudi economy is, is extremely oil dependent. Uh, oil accounts for uh, well over 75, well over 85 percent of government revenue. And it's a, depending on how you calculate it, it's a large chunk of the GDP. There's no question about that. Uh, when Mohammed bin Salman came in, when his father came into power, when King Salman came in in 2015, oil prices were very low, right? They were down below $40 a barrel. They were in the 30s. And at that level, you just couldn't fund the Saudi government. And so uh, I think that there was quite a bit of leeway for Mohammed bin Salman to say, look, we can't go on like this. We have to change our economy. And uh, Vision 2030 was rolled out in 2016, very ambitious targets about how the Saudi economy would change through foreign investment, through greater domestic private sector investment, uh, less reliance on the government to provide citizens with jobs, more jobs in the private sector. But it's a lot easier to say those things than to do them. Uh, The whole Saudi private sector was built on a model of relatively cheap foreign labor. Uh, probably 90% of the, of the private sector workforce in Saudi Arabia is foreign labor. That's both high-end uh, workers, engineers, consultants, uh, people who make the place run, middle-level workers, you know, your electricians, your plumbers, they might be from Egypt, they might be from Yemen, they might be from India, accountants, uh, and then, you know, your, your low-level workers, the, the guys who clean the streets, they're from Bangladesh, uh, Sri Lanka, places like that. This was a model that was very successful in the Saudi private sector. The Saudi private sector was going gangbusters over the last 15 years. They probably added a million jobs to the economy, but 90% of those jobs went to foreign workers. Mohammed bin Salman said, we have to do something different there. But then, you know, 2016, 2017, oil prices started going up. And as oil prices start going up, there's just much less uh, sense of emergency about the economy. And and Mohammed bin Salman has been drawing back some of the austerity measures, like like cutting government spending that were part of Vision 2030. Uh, And and I think that... what, this, what these last few years have shown is how difficult it is to change an economy so dependent on oil and a private sector so dependent on cheaper foreign labor into the, the Vision 2030 model. So that actually leads me to my next question. Um, I want to know more about the purge. Um, I guess MBS, his, how he consolidated power to himself. Um, we all know about the purge, and I believe, please correct me if I'm wrong, but in 2017, he purged about what, three member, 300 members of the elite into a really nice jail called the Ritz-Carlton. Um, I was really curious uh, what your opinion would be on this. Do you think it was MBS trying to take down his political rivals 
or do you think it was more so him shaking down the political elite for cash for not going along with his economic reforms? I think it was more the latter. I, I think that he had basically consolidated his power. He had moved Mohammed bin Nayef out of the crown prince position. And the members of the ruling family who were in the Ritz-Carlton, I didn't see them particularly as threats to his power. Now, uh, you know, it doesn't have to be all one thing and all the other. He did cut at some of the sons of, of King Abdullah, uh, cut at their wealth, cut at their positions within the government. And you could see that as part of a clearing of, of potential political rivals. But I think that the main thrust of the, the Ritz-Carlton Roundup and the 300 people who were in there was not a, a, a consolidation of power in his hands within the ruling family. He had already done that. I think it was a message to the economic elites of the kingdom. And, and the vast majority of the people who were in there were not members of the ruling family. They were, they were the economic elites, not the ruling family elites. You know, some were in there. But, you know, we're talking about 10, 12, 15 of 300 or so. Most of the people who were in there were the economic elites. And I think that he was trying to send a couple of messages. One, I think it was a shakedown. He was looking for money uh, to fund his uh, 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 grand vision, of uh, Vision 2030, of a, of, of a changed Saudi economy, which the Saudi private sector really wasn't uh, making major investments in at that time. I think it was also an effort to some extent to clear out some of the leading uh, uh, business families in Saudi Arabia, grab some of their assets and maybe open up space for him to create his own, if you will, client private sector. We'll see, if, we'll see how that develops. I think a lot of this backfired on him though. Uh, uh, I think that it, uh, it led to uh, an even greater reluctance on the part of foreign investors to invest in Saudi Arabia, right? If you can see, if you see the government basically taking the assets without due process of, of leading figures, you know, some of the major names in the Saudi economy, you have to wonder about the security of your own investment in that context. Uh, I think it also just redoubled the reluctance of many in the, in the Saudi private sector to invest under the current circumstances. You know, up until, uh, up until 2017, the rules of the game in Saudi Arabia were pretty clear in the economy. Uh, they are absolutely unclear now. We don't know what's coming after them. And, and capital is a coward. Capital isn't going to invest if they don't know the rules. Yeah, something that I saw that was interesting, um, Netflix had to take a showdown, in, I believe, in Saudi Arabia. Um, it was a, a, a comedian who is on the Trevor Noah show. Um, yes. Um, I, he was critical of the Saudi government or something like that. I obviously, I honestly don't know the full story of what he said that was offensive, but he was forced to take the, sh they were forced to take the show down from Netflix. And I can see how Google and Facebook and all these tech giants would say, well, this guy is uh, behaving erratically right now. We really can't predict his behavior. Um, we're not going to invest it. So I can definitely see how situations like that can lead to a, could really, uh, I guess, dismantle the hopes of them creating a knowledge-based economy. Yeah. I mean, the, the Hassan Minaj show, which is called Patriot Act, uh, it's a Netflix streaming show. It's, it's basically kind of uh, a, a riff on the news with some comedy. Uh, it, it, uh, you can see, I mean, you can see the episode. It's still up. It, it's, it, it's just not streaming in Saudi now, but 
if there's one thing that will make something a hit in any country, it's to ban it in that country. So my guess is that Saudis will be watching it even more than they, they, they might have been. Yeah, and from my understanding, Saudi Arabia, per capita, they have the highest Twitter use. And, and one of the highest internet penetration rates in the Middle East. Yeah, so if you, if you think the Arab Spring was created by Twitter <laughs> and the internet, uh, Saudi Arabia is the outstanding counterexample because there's no country in, in the Middle East that's more internet penetrated than Saudi Arabia, and yet it was the Arab state, uh, the, the large Arab state, that had, uh, that had the least disruption in the Arab Spring. And speaking of, of Arab Spring, um, I know this is a little off topic, but I figured I'd ask you anyway. So what was Saudi Arabia's, or let me go back, let me peel this back a little bit. So I've heard the term, a, call, a term called ruling bargain when it comes to the relationship between uh, the Saudi royal family and the population. And the, and the term refers to um, the royal family will take care of all the material needs of the Saudi, of the Saudi citizens, meaning they'll subsidize their housing, water, med- medicine, um, I think at le- electricity at one time. They'll subsidize their way of living. However, if they fail to provide those types of subsidies, I mean, do you anticipate some type of backlash from the community? Well, we've already seen a backlash. Some of the things that uh, Mohammed bin Salman did in Vision 2030 was cut the subsidies for electricity and water use and thus raising people's bills. And there was a lot of complaining, a lot of it on Twitter. And, And as oil prices went back up, in 2017, they rolled back some of these, some of the austerity measures. Uh, now, I think that the, the, you know, charging closer to world prices, to real world prices for electricity and water is actually essential for Saudi Arabia. I mean, it, it, the, the, the level of waste in electricity use and water use, I think, is very, very high. And, and the only way you can get that rationalized is through the price mechanism. So you subsidize people, uh, of course, they're going to use uh, a lot more of, of the of the of the commodity, but uh, there was a backlash to that. Now, it, it, did that lead people into the streets? No, didn't lead people into the streets. I actually think that the Saudi regime is pretty stable. Uh, they they uh, they have lots of money in the bank. There's still about five hundred billion dollars in hard currency reserves that the that the state has. Uh, they're the potential uh, opponents of the regime domestically are themselves divided between kind of more hardline Wahhabi types, you know, people who are more sympathetic to the Al Qaeda view of the world, the Islamic State view of the world, versus people who would like perhaps a more open system, and you know, all sorts of groups in between. You've got Shia, you've got a Shia minority in Saudi Arabia that would have a, a very hard time making common cause with these more radical Sunni types, even though they both don't like the regime. So I think that, that as long as the Saudi ruling family can keep the unity together and oil prices don't completely collapse, the, the regime's prospects are pretty good. Uh, but without a doubt, there was grumbling when, uh, when the, the government cut back on these subsidies. subsidies. Do, you, uh, do you know if there's any backlash from when, when um... MBS allowed women to drive in Saudi Arabia? Was there any type of backlash? I haven't seen any public backlash. There were some okay. Twitter complaints, but 
I haven't seen anything that was certainly no public demonstrations. I didn't think there'd be any. I think the 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 wives and daughters of the clerics will be among the first behind the wheel. His reform on on uh, women being able to drive, in my opinion, it's the best thing that he's done so far as the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. Now, um, I kind of want I want to turn the conversation into some of the more negative things that he's done, and um, I'm not even even really going to include the unfortunate murder of Jamal Khashoggi. Um, what is the current status of the war in Yemen? So uh, the war in Yemen is a humanitarian disaster and a political stalemate. Uh, when the Saudis went in and the Emiratis, uh, the Emiratis went in on the ground, the Saudis went in in the air mostly. Uh, the Houthi movement, which is loosely allied with Iran, more closely allied with Iran now than it might have been five or six years ago, uh, they were on the verge of capturing Aden. The, the, they had captured Sana'a, the capital. They were on the verge of capturing Aden uh, and basically taking control of most of the population centers of the country. Uh, that led the Saudis and the Emiratis, who worried that this would be uh, an Iranian gain in the geopolitical game, led them to intervene. And, and at the beginning, the intervention was successful. It pushed the Houthis back towards Sana'a. But then the, 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 uh, the, the military uh, momentum stalled. And, and for the last couple of years, it's basically been uh, uh, pretty static, and, uh, but uh, continued bombing campaigns by the Saudis. Uh, continued deprivation uh, of the Yemeni people, cholera outbreaks, uh, uh, food shortages. Uh, the Saudis and the Emiratis have some responsibility for this. The, the Houthis have some responsibility for this. It's 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 not all one-sided, but but it, but what the Saudis have not been able to do is bring this war to a close, either through a victory or through a negotiated settlement. And that, I think, is, is the enormous political failure of the Saudis. Uh, and now they've got to decide. Uh, they got to find some way to bring this war to a close, because I think that uh, they're losing more and more support internationally, even in the Trump administration, for the war. Uh, and it's extremely costly. And thus, it, it does seem to me that, that we ha would have to say that, that this is a failure on the Saudi part. Now, it's a failure that they can probably sustain because they're not losing a lot of people, right? There's not a lot of casualties on the Saudi side for this war. But it's gonna to have to be international pressure, which the Khashoggi uh, situation opens up that window of more pressure on the Saudis, which might push toward some kind of diplomatic solution on Yemen. Certainly the UN mediator, uh, Ambassador Griffiths, has been more active in the last couple of months and there have been meetings up in Sweden between the Houthis and representatives of the Saudi-supported Yemeni government. So we'll see that where that moves. So how much does the war, or how much does the responsibility of the war fall on uh, Mohammed bin Salman's shoulders? Oh, it's his war. He was defense minister uh, when, when this war started. And at the beginning, uh, Saudi media very much uh, depicted it as his war, because I think they thought they were going to get a, you know, a pretty quick victory. Uh, it's not depicted as, as the Crown Prince's war as often now, but it, it certainly was his, it, it, was, it was his initiative. Did, did he overestimate Saudi Arabia? It seems like he thinks that Saudi Arabia is, is a great power. Yeah, I think he overestimates Saudi power. 
uh, I think that his uncles who ruled before him uh, had a pretty good appreciation for the limits of Saudi power. Uh, operating in a region where they had to deal with, with uh, big regional states like Egypt under Nasser or uh, Iran, uh, where they had to deal with the Cold War. Uh, they understood, I think, the limits of Saudi power. Uh, Mohammed bin Salman is a young man. Uh, he didn't grow up during those periods where uh, the Saudi state was facing really serious pressures in the 50s and 60s from Arab nationalism, in the 70s, uh, late 70s and into the 80s from the Iranian revolution, the Iran-Iraq war. Uh, even the, even the uh, Saddam Hussein's invasion of Kuwait in 1990 would have been something that, that he would have experienced not as, a, uh, uh, not as an adult, but as a, as, as a child, uh, because he's only in his early 30s. So I, I think that he has an exaggerated view of Saudi power. Uh, and perhaps he's learning lessons uh, in the last couple of months from the fallout of the Khashoggi affair uh, about the limits of Saudi power. I mean, I think he looked around and saw uh, you know, Russia goes and, 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 and kills its uh, dissident opponents abroad, and China does that, and the Iranians do that, all of which is true. But I think he, he overestimated Saudi power. He's not, he's not Russia. He's not China. He's not even Iran. Yeah, and I, and I have a question that I, I'm hoping that you can help, help me further understand. So the Houthis are a Shiite group. Mm -hmm. But I'm having under, I'm having trouble connecting them with Iran. Like, are they an Iranian client? Right. So we have to get into the weeds a little bit on on uh, Shia history here. Uh, the, the 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 main vast majority of the Shia population in the Muslim world uh, is uh, what's called the Twelver Shia. It has to do with the the line of imams from the uh, the Prophet Muhammad. And, and his successors in the Shia view, uh, people of his bloodline. Uh, the vast majority see the, the, the line of succession stopping at the 12th Imam, and we won't get into the theology of it and all, but that's, that's, that's the, the Shiism in Iran. In, in Yemen, the Houthis and the Shia population in, in Yemen are, are called Zaydis. Uh, their notion of the line of succession from the Prophet Muhammad broke off at the seventh Imam. And, and, and in fact, there was a line of Imams that ruled in Yemen, more or less, right up until 1962, uh, right up to the, to the North Yemeni revolution of 1962. Uh, and so uh, theologically and, and, and historically, there's not a whole lot of connection between the Zaydis in North Yemen, in the northern part of Yemen, and the Iranians. But the Houthi movement, which emerged in the 1990s, really in opposition to the previous regime in Yemen, Ali Abdullah Saleh, the Houthis uh, adopted the, the, the rhetoric of the Iranian revolution. You know, death to America, death to Israel, all that kind of stuff. I think to get the Iranians to notice them. I think that I, my soundbite on this is that, is that the Houthis wanted to be Iranian clients more than Iran wanted to be their patron. And there was some connection between the two, but it, it was not nearly as extensive as, say, Iran's relationship with Hezbollah in Lebanon or Iran's relationship with the Iraqi Shi militias that it helped set up after the American invasion and even before. 
But when the Saudis and the Emiratis went in to Yemen, the Iranians saw a, a, a low-cost way to, to really bleed the Saudis. And so they have been undoubtedly supportive politically, to some extent economically, to some extent in terms of arms shipments and arms deliveries to the Houthis. So yeah, I mean, I think that the Houthis are allies of Iran. Are they clients of Iran? Not to the extent that Hezbollah is or some of the Iraqi militias are. Um, I guess my, my perception was that um, the Houthis, they want to be Hezbollah, but um, Iran doesn't really feel the same way, but they may as well, they might as well just throw them a bone if they're going to cause a bit, a bit of chaos in Saudi Arabia. That was always my perception. Like they yeah. will just throw them a bone. Maybe, I don't know like if, how much they're funding them or if they're funding them at all. Um, but in reality, they don't, they don't care too much about them rather than their just their I ability think, to cause a headache. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I, I, we know that there's some Hezbollahis from Lebanon down with the Houthis training them working with them, which makes sense because, I mean, they, they speak Arabic. So, so, I mean, they're better, they're, they're better uh, on the ground uh, allies than the, than the Iranians would be. But uh, no, there's, there's a relationship between the Iranians and the Houthis, but it's not, uh, it's not as tight as some of the other relationships Iran has with its clients and allies throughout the region. So this, uh, this brings me to the big question I have. And, um, the question is, what do you think the future holds for Mohammed bin Salman? Will he eventually be ousted? No, I don't think so. I, I, mean, okay. I, think, I think he's going to be king of Saudi Arabia. Uh, the fact that, that the family, that, that groups in the family who don't like, them, like him have not been able to use this crisis, the Khashoggi crisis, to mobilize a, a, a counterforce within the family against him, at least so far, where there's been no public indication of that. Uh, the next big uh, crisis that Mohammed bin Salman is going to have is when his father dies. Uh, the king gives him cover. Uh, when his father dies, uh, that will be, I think, the last chance people in the family will have to mount a challenge to him. And the question is, will they be organized enough? Will they be uh, uh, brave enough? Will they have enough support within uh, the Saudi family and Saudi society to do it? Uh, if I had to guess right now, I would guess no, that they won't be able to do it. Uh, so, uh, again, things could change over time. But if I had to put a bet right now, I would, I would bet that Mohammed bin Salman will be the next king. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. 
and you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, I was on a fence about that. I kind of thought that he was going to be ousted during the heat of the, of the Khashoggi stuff. However, people have short memories, and um, I mean, it's less and less people talk about it nowadays. People are more concentrated on the war in Yemen and uh, what's going on in Syria right now. But I think that he'll, I, 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 I kind of think that he's going to be around as well. Um, I have a quick question before we wrap things up, and I meant to ask it earlier. Do you think that King Salman appointed Muhammad bin Salman as a crown prince because he just wanted his son to be the new heir? Well, uh, the king has a lot of sons, uh, uh, a number of sons, some, uh, some uh, older, a uh, number older than uh, Mohammed bin Salman, uh, uh, more experienced in government positions. Uh, the, the persistent story you hear in Saudi Arabia is that the, the king uh, chose Mohammed bin Salman because he saw something in him that reminded him of his father, Ibn Saud. Uh, kind of a toughness, a directness. That's at least the story that goes around. So I, I, I think that to some extent it was uh, uh, King Salman saying, well, if, if, if we have to pass rulership to the next generation, I, wanna, I want somebody tough enough to do it, to, to be able to handle the job. And a father, I think, probably uh, maybe maybe with a little bit of bias, looks at uh, looks at one of his sons to do that. Yeah, I mean, he, when he was first emerging from the scene, he certainly seemed charismatic. I'll give him that. When he was uh, hanging out with Mark Zuckerberg playing virtual reality games, I was like, wow, this is a, a, a handsome guy who says he wants to bring social reform to Saudi Arabia. Um, this might be good. Uh, and then one bad thing after another happens, but. Um, you know, who knows? Um, Greg, I, I know you have some, uh, I know you have some books. Um, love to plug them in. So, yeah, I, I, um, I wish I could say I had something more recent on Saudi Arabia, but the most recent book is uh, from Cambridge University Press. It's called The International Politics of the Persian Gulf. Uh, came out in 2010. Uh, uh, it's not exactly a, a page turner in terms of, uh, you know, being a, a, a read like a good like a good novel but i think it's a pretty uh, a pretty comprehensive review of the wars that we've seen in the persian gulf region the iran iraq war uh, saddam hussein's invasion of kuwait the american uh, response to that and and then the american invasion of iraq in 2003 and what came after that so if you're interested in in getting a, a up to date on on that background uh, i can recommend that book what, one of my favorite, one of the books that got me interested into the Middle East was actually a book called Oil Kings. I know that was written. Um, I, I can't tell you when it was written. Early, but I, early 2010s. I think it came out 2011, uh, 2012. It was about the 70s. It was based on the, it was actually based on the American diplomatic archives, uh, which had been uh, released after the 30 years rule. Uh, and so it, it was based on, on kind of State Department and, and White House archives. Uh, the story of the, the the oil revolution of the early 70s and how the Shah of Iran and the and the Saudis played into it and American politics and how the Nixon White House was divided some of them like the Saudis some of them like the Shah it was it was a good story it was a, and a good read and he's a good writer 
Yeah, it was a really good story. And another book that I'm currently reading right now, and I actually, I recently found this out and I'm a huge basketball fan and I, I have no, I don't know how I didn't know this, but Steve Kerr's dad was a academic uh, a, a, who focused on the Middle East. Like he, he lived in Lebanon, correct? And yeah, he, Malcolm, he, Kerr. Malcolm Kerr, and he wrote a book called The Arab Cold War. Yeah, I, I still assign the Arab Cold War in my classes. It's a really, it's a classic, short, a readable account of, of the rivalry between Gamal Abdel Nasser and, and uh, his, his rivals within the Arab nationalist movement and opponents like the Saudis of the Arab nationalist movement. Uh, it's, it's, I think, still an essential read. Uh, yeah, he was, uh, he was a professor at UCLA, uh, wrote a number of books on the Middle East, uh, then he became, uh, spent time in Lebanon. I mean, uh, Steve Kerr grew up part of his life in Lebanon. Uh, and, uh, Malcolm Kerr went back to Lebanon as the president of the American University of Beirut, uh, and was assassinated in 1983, as I recall, maybe 84, uh, uh probably by, uh, uh, allies of Iran within Lebanon kind of the precursors of Hezbollah, uh, because the American University of Beirut w was and is kind of the leading uh, institutional expression of American influence and Western influence in Lebanon. And so, yeah, uh, it's uh, for people like me who, who study the Middle East, uh, particularly uh, political scientists, Malcolm was a political scientist, uh, I'm a political scientist, he's, he's kind of our patron saint. And uh, and so, yeah, uh, it, it's uh, somebody who I, I, whose work I think is still very valuable to read. Yeah, I'm reading it right now, and I really can't put it down. It's 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 a great book, and I I was really surprised to find out that Steve Kerr's dad was was the Malcolm Kerr. Yep. Um, I even I even heard that his um, when Steve Kerr was in college, um, fans would yell PLO yeah. out loud. Yeah, and that's a funny uh, story. Yeah, he played for uh, University of Arizona. And it, especially at Arizona State games when he was on the foul line, that champ PLO and, uh, you know, trying to rattle him. And he's even even as a college student, he's such a self-possessed guy that, you know, he told the press afterwards. I don't know whether they're chanting PLO. The, the PLO guys uh, guarded our street in Beirut. I knew them. <laughs> they <were> our friends. <laughs> that's hilarious. It wasn't the PLO who, who went after his father. That's that's hilarious. It shows you how mean college fans are. That's for sure. Yeah, especially if you go to. Well, I'm sure you're used to it if you're if you're at over at uh, Texas A&M. Yeah, we're, we're we're serious about our sports. If uh, SEC is a different is a different level. Yeah. Most most New Yorkers do not understand the intensity of college sports until they go down south of football, especially particularly at football. Yeah. Well, um, any closing statements? Love to give the love to give the closing floor to you. Sure. I mean, I think our relationship, the U.S. relationship with Saudi Arabia continues to be a very important one. It's always been a troubled one. It's never been one based on values. If, if you see any, any, any reason for the U.S. to continue its relationship with Saudi Arabia, it has to do with, with your thoughts about American interests and stability in the region and oil. And, and that's the kind of debate I think we need to have. I mean, this was never a nice regime. It was never a regime that respected human rights. And the question is, is, is the the cost of associating uh, the United States with a regime like that uh, greater than the value it gets for its, its very specific material interests in the region. And that's really where the debate is. I, I tend to come down on, on the side that says, yeah, I mean, uh, 
with all the problems, we still need a decent relationship with Saudi Arabia. But I think it, it, it requires us to, to set some guardrails for Mohammed bin Salman about what we can and can't tolerate. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I guess we'll, we'll close out with that. Uh, Gregory, it was, it was an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Um, really, really appreciate your time. Uh, I'm going to continue, you know, watching for your work. I, I love the lectures that you, that are, that are, um, the lectures that you give at different think tanks are awesome. Um, especially the ones at the DU center and, uh, the center for Middle East, I, I believe as well. Uh, there's so many think tanks, but I, I specifically search your name in YouTube and I'm looking for lectures on the, uh, on the Middle East. So I really appreciate you putting those out there. And, um, everyone, I will be posting the description of, uh, Gregory's books. So uh, check those out. They'll be on, um, I guess they'll be on Amazon. And uh, thanks again, Gregory. Really appreciate the time. My pleasure. It was fun. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.